Well, good morning, everybody. I can't believe we called new people up on stage on their first day. Last time we did that was many years ago, and that person never came back. So I'm very sorry about that, and some days I wonder how we are still open. But um, I'm so glad uh, that you guys are here, and for Ugly Sweater Sunday, and for a continuation of our teaching series. So I got um, some free patio heaters from my neighbor, and uh, I was pretty excited about it. He, uh, he asked me how many I wanted, and I said, how many can I have? And he says, as many as you want. And I was like, then I'll take as many as I can fit in my truck. Because why would you not want to have as many patio heaters as you possibly could? And you'd say, yeah, but come on, isn't half a dozen patio heaters a little bit excessive? Not if you want to heat a lot of patio. And so if, if you have more patio heaters, you have more patio that's heated, and you can have more people over to hang out for longer periods of the year. And so it makes perfect sense to me. Now, I didn't exactly understand the whole situation, but from what I gathered, it seems as if this might be like an Amazon local return facility. And so people buy these heaters and then they something's wrong with them or they don't like them and they return them, but they don't go back to Amazon, whatever that means. They just largely go to this, this clearing house that's gonna get rid of them, gonna dump them but their warehouse was full, so they started piling all these heaters up outside the warehouse, and lots of them, dozens and dozens, maybe 50, 100 boxes and partial boxes of these returned heaters, which was a little sketchy, to be quite honest, because he says, pull up behind the, the warehouse and just you know say hi to Joe and start loading them in. And so I walked over, I'm like, hey, is Joe here? And he's like, yeah, I'm Joe. I'm like, I'm here for the heaters. He's like, okay, go ahead. And I start loading them in the back of the truck. And it's like, you know, whole boxes, partial boxes, parts laying on the ground, wheels and, and extra bags of screws and hoses. And, and I'm just kind of throwing them in there. And I load up the whole truck in kind of a frantic hurry just in case it was sketchy. And then, and then I, I drove home and I put them over into the, into the garage. And, and I was so happy. It only took me like four or five hours of my life that I'll never get back to get all of these mismatched patio heaters. And now they need to be put together, but they had to be kind of Frankenstein, right? Because they weren't all the, the same units and they also uh, were, were returned for a reason. And so some of them had broken parts and you had to kind of figure out which parts. And so fortunately, I had a guy that I could hire who would help me kind of do that and put them all together and go through all the parts. So that was like another 100, 200 bucks, I think, that I had to pay him for my free patio heaters. And then I, I had to go and I had to get extra, we ended up getting what we thought were maybe four or five working units and, and then I had, to get, I had to get propane for those and so I went to go buy some propane tanks for my, my free patio heaters. And then we ended up, after a while, I had to go back out there and troubleshoot and get them all running because, you know, those things don't start exactly how you kind of hope they do. And so if you've ever worked with them, they're, they're a little bit finicky sometimes. And so I finally got my patio heaters all working, very nice and toasty. I ended up with four free patio heaters, fully working, wonderfully toasty. So if anybody wants to come over and hang out under my patio heaters, I would appreciate it because so far we haven't used them at all. Um, and so if I, now what I'm hoping to do is I'm going to convince Cheryl that this was her Christmas gift. Because then I could be like, look, honey, I thought you would want it for the, you know, have people over and, and all of that. And I just put a bow on it and be done. Call that a season. 
So I get to thinking as I'm working through these things, right, and I'm getting a little bit frustrated because I'm spending hours sort of troubleshooting and trying to figure out and why isn't it working and how come this be, why does this one look like it's blowing up? And I, and I end up and I'm thinking to myself, do I really own these patio heaters or do they own me? Because I felt like the one being owned right then. I was like, this doesn't quite make sense. And isn't it that way with everything in our lives? Which is why these relationships matter because everything that we purchase or what we invest in or what we, some experience that we want to buy and have, we, we give them things. We give them time and affection and love and, we, and, and, and our resources. And then ultimately we have to stop and ask the question, who owns who? Right? And so if you're a collector of things, my mom was an avid collector. She collected pretty much anything you ever got her one of, she would collect more of. And she had these huge collections. And, and then, of course, when it comes time to clean, you've got to clean every one of these things. I think it was like she had this giant collection of precious moments, like giant, like three giant units of it. And so, you know, after a while, you got to get in there, you start dusting, and that gets old pretty quick. So what do you do? If you have a big collection, how do you keep them from getting dusty? You, you get like a, a curio, I think they call it, or a cabinet of some sort, right? A glass cabinet. So now you literally have to buy a house for your tchotchkes. Think of that, right? Like that's, that's how these things play out. And I got to asking myself even after that, is this a question related to materialism? For me, like personally, and where else does it show up in my life? When I'm looking to purchase things that make me feel a certain way or promise me something, when I'm purchasing more of something than maybe I needed, or I have an experience and then I want to repeat that experience again. Or I want a little bit more money stashed, stashed over here because that will make me feel what? Comfortable, secure. You fill in the blank. Because it's different for all of us. So we're in this series called Christmas. Because around this time of the year, it's a great time for us to start thinking about all of the joyful, joyful stuff, right? This is the time where we look for peace on earth and we want to bring goodwill toward men and we have all of these hopes and dreams and desires for what this season will be for us, but often it ends up quite the mess. And last week, Trevor talked to, to us about the mess that happens in our families and in our relationships through anger and frustration. And today, we get to take a look at the mess that money makes. Researchers tell us that the mess that happens in our lives over the holidays is often rooted in some way in money. For instance, compare American wealth and possessions from, say, the 1950s to today. We have twice as many cars per person as we had in the 50s. Our cars are better than they were back then. They do more stuff and they're safer. They're even more efficient. Think about how often we go out to eat. Twice as often as we would have in the 50s or 60s. There are products that we now have which we consider really commodities at this point that they didn't even have access to. Giant screen TVs, SUVs that, that hold a small army. 
We have all sorts of gizmos and gadgets and, and, and microwave ovens and new types of coffee makers and, and the beloved smartphone. And yet researchers tell us that although we have way more affluence, we have less happiness. How is that even possible? We have higher rates and risks of depression and a whole host of other social pathologies than we did back in the 50s. A journal, the American psychologist, said it like this, our becoming much better off over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. Not one iota. And there's all sorts of theories. Some researchers point to the fact that wealth makes us less happy because of the time it takes to acquire, spend, and maintain our stuff. Not unlike my patio heaters. Others say, well, that's part of it, but there's actually something inherent in the pursuit of exterior things which take you away from the work of the interior. And when it takes you away from the work of the interior, it becomes a direct correlation with less happiness. Still, other researchers would say, yes, yes, that's true, but the real dissatisfaction happens because we invest so much. We put unrealistic expectations on the things we buy, on the experiences that we pursue, and so we invest all of it. And mostly what we're looking for out of them is some form of progress or happiness or increased relationship. You see, we don't just buy things to buy things. We buy things because of what they promise us. And we put unrealistic expectations. It's not unlike the family that says, I'm going to redo the house and remodel it so that my kids will be here and stay closer and stay longer and be happier for many more years. And yet it doesn't actually help. You think of you know, the dads who work all of these hours and they use money to try to offset the lost relationship with the kids. And all of a sudden the kids are like, I don't want the stuff. I wanted you. We put these unrealistic expectations on the stuff. So today we get to see what God tells us about money in the Bible. And I decided, you know, it's Christmas, why not? I decided to pick one of the hardest teachings about money found in the Bible. So this should be really, really fun. By the way, special welcome to our guests today. Thank you for being here while we talk about some uh, particularly difficult topics, starting in the book of James. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Well, this wouldn't be such bad news, but here's a little, you know, we have to ask the question, who are the rich people? Spoiler alert, you're not going to like the answer. Because, of course, what we want to do is we want to look at all of the other people. The people that have more than us that are in those neighborhoods that drive those cars and say those are the rich people. But by most any measure you use globally or historically and through the definitions you can derive from the scriptures themselves, the rich people that James is talking about are Christians who are discontent even though they have enough money for savings, 
They have enough money to pay people for their services, say, at a restaurant or to bring you stuff or to make products for you and, and bring them to your home. Or if you have resources to spend on stuff beyond your needs for food, shelter, clothing. That makes us, most all of us here, the rich people that James is warning. And he scales it up a little bit, and he's going to do this throughout the whole text we're looking at today. He says, your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. He uses these, these three different ways of describing it, and he's repeating himself because he wants to make sure we understand that there is no form of wealth or possessions that are going to last. They're going to rot, they're going to be eaten, they're going to be corroded, they're all going to be swept away in the end. Clothing back in the day was actually a valuable form of commodity, of trade. It was one of the ways you would curry favor with other wealthy people or in business and transactions. You would use these uh, exquisite garments as sort of a, an investment and as a payment for things. And so like, kind of like, you know, how, you know in, the, in the industry sometimes people give you like ridiculously expensive bottles of whiskey or something like that, like a thousand dollar bottle of whiskey. They're currying favor with you using these luxury items. That's actually how clothes uh, would have been used back in the day. But all of them, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's your clothes, it's all of your wealth, it's your gold and silver, all of it has and will corrode. And, and what he says here, I think, is a little bit disturbing for us because we have to recognize that wealth itself isn't the issue in a sense. We all know that. I mean, we live in a world and the way it works and, and even Jesus and the apostles and the early church, they all, they have to do business and transact in this way. It's one of the reasons why the scriptures were, are filled with instructions about wealth and the right use of wealth because it's a necessary part of the world, but it comes with great risks. John Calvin, a reformer from like 500 years ago, he phrased it like this. He said, Ivory and gold and riches of all kinds are certainly blessings of divine providence. So whatever you have, you ought to be able to consider it a blessing from God. It really is. Ivory, gold, we wouldn't say ivory today, obviously. This is a way not politically correct and wrong in, in every way. Uh, but anyway, his point is this is what was wealth and value in his day. Expressly designed for the use of men. Nor are we anywhere prohibited to laugh or to be satiated with food or to obtain new possessions. We're not prohibited from doing any of these things. This is, act these are, this is actually a blessing from God and ought to be received with thanksgiving and gratitude. This indeed is true, but amidst the abundance of all things, to be immersed in sensual delights, immersed to inebriate the heart and mind. I love that phrasing to deaden it as if, as if drunk, as if on drugs. You're, you're watching the mind and the heart get inebriated. We'll come back to that in a minute. With present pleasures and perpetually to grasp, to always be looking for more. To perpetually to grasp at new ones. These things are very remote from a legitimate use of the divine blessings. 
James goes on to tell us that these, these, this wealth itself, the corrosion, will testify. It's as if these, this gold and silver are sitting in warehouses or sitting in the bank and, and you know, your grain is sitting in silos and as it rots and as, the, as it tarnishes, it stands as a testimony that it wasn't being used. It just sat there so that you might be able to count it or count on it, but it's not working. It's not doing what it was meant to do. It's not, it's not bringing any sort of joy or peace or happiness or food or shelter or clothing to a whole host of people that need it. And because of that, it will turn. It'll eat your flesh like fire. Ow! So the, the wealth itself that's piling up, we look at it and we go, look how smart I've been, how wise I've been. Look at how my investment portfolios are doing. And he's saying... Those very things, that's what's testifying against you. And in some mysterious way, by some unknown mechanism in the unseen world, the pursuit and hoarding of wealth actually turns on itself and consumes its owner. The wages you failed to pay, they are crying out against you. Our lack of generosity will stand and it will testify against us. See, wealth is dangerous. It's dangerous and ought to be handled and treated as such. I used to think, no, 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 it's just neutral like so many other things in this world. But with the amount of warnings we get in the scriptures and the aggressiveness of the warnings we get, which are unprecedented in most of the rest of scripture, with this kind of frequency, and vigor, you look at it and you go, man, something is up here. One scholar, he put it like this, he says, I used to think when I was a child that Christ might have been exaggerating when he warned about the dangers of wealth. Today I know better. I know how hard it is to be rich and still keep the milk of human kindness. Money has a dangerous way of putting scales on one's eyes, a dangerous way of freezing people's hands, eyes, lips, and hearts. James, he doubles down on this and he says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. This is a way that James is trying to bring us into what scholars would call the eschatological reality, the end of time. And James is trying to say the last days, which we're already living in, the last days mean Jesus is going to return. It's a promise that the scriptures make over and over from the very beginning to the end. It's a promise that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all things right and all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and all will pay, make an accounting of what they did with what they were given. And James wants us to remember that the way we use our wealth today, how we accumulate it, what we spend it on, how we invest it in all of those things, James wants us to know that a day is coming when the temporal will end and the eternal will begin. What will you have to show in that day? And if that wasn't enough, he uses this phrase, It'll, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. He doesn't just say, this phrase here is interesting. It's a, it's a phrase that in the, uh, it's, it's a Greek phrase in the New Testament, but it's translation of a Hebrew phrase that means the Lord of armies. And so the picture is that in the last days, the Lord is coming. And he's not going to just sort of saunter onto the scene. He's coming in might and power with his armies 
armies and legions of angels and he is going to make all things right and he is going to demand a world of justice and hope and peace and all of that. He's going to, to bring that day. The Lord of armies is coming. In each way, James is picking images and metaphors to shake us out of our lethargy. He wants to wake us up and he wants to say, this thing is making a mess of your lives and you've got to pay attention to it. He said, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. These words, they, they would be great for a whole series to study what it means and how do we understand when something is luxury and when something is self-indulgence and when it's just simply a need or even a legitimate want. And he says, you have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. This is a curious phrase because it, it actually, it, if you were just to take it as literal, it says you've gorged your heart, which is such an unusual kind of a phrase. You've gorged your heart. And so the, the translators try to, try to figure out what is he saying by this, but he's saying you've gorged your heart in the day of slaughter. So imagine that your heart is the center of all of your longings and your desires, and it's what, you know, it's what you most set your affections on, right? That's how we even still use it today. It's what your heart is chasing. And if you were to give your heart everything that it wanted, considering we are still in our fallen state, we're still wrestling with the heart of flesh that is in us. If you were to feed your heart everything that it wanted, you'd gorge it on things that aren't good for it. It would be like a non-stop you're just grabbing everything you can and you're just stuffing it into your heart and that makes a fat heart only good to be consumed. When he ends this particular section, he says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. And this is one of the cases where the footnotes in your Bible are pretty helpful because the translators struggle with this because it feels like he's still talking about the workers. But this particular phrase is singular. And so there are a number of scholars who say he would have said all of the innocent ones. He wouldn't have said the innocent one. In actuality, this is a term that says the righteous one. You've condemned and murdered the righteous one, which is a title that's used of Jesus four or five other times in the New Testament. I think James is bringing us back to the one who died for our sins. I think he's bringing us back at the end. He's saying, listen, your sins, and in this case, our greed and our self-centeredness, this is what murdered the righteous one. It was the righteous one who left all of the glories of heaven and all of the wealth that was of the, the kingdom of God and he left it on that first Christmas day to become a helpless, poor child in an occupied state, living under great duress and risk. And he did not need to do any of that and yet he gave up what was rightly his so that the true poor, us, could find eternal hope in him. Behold, I go and prepare a place for you. That's what he promised us. He left here. He's giving us an eternal home, the new heaven and the new earth in those last days when he returns. That's what he's going to do for us. He left it all, became a pauper. I think James is saying, you follow the righteous one. 
Do you remember what our sin cost? So what does this look like for us in the 21st century? I want, some, I want to give us a couple of tools. I want us to start by just agreeing that we need to be suspicious, be very suspicious when it comes toward money, materialism, and consumption. That, that ought to be our, our primary posture. We ought to question it, right? The image that comes to mind is this constant grabbing and this always stuffing in it. This is one of my favorite clips in probably all of TV history. <laughs> this is what life begins oh, like. Easier. Yeah, we can handle this, okay? I'll take a little of that one. This one's good. They've got a boss. If one gets through, they lose their job. Suddenly everything starts moving a little too fast. Quick, eat it, grab it, stuff it, hide it. boss comes in and right when they've already been overwhelmed and frantic and they feel like they're already exhausted from all of this she says looks like you're doing good crank it up which is what the world does to us and we have got to be suspicious we can't always think that progress and more is always the right solution J.C. Ryle he said that I am sure of nothing such has a tendency to quench the fire of religion as the possession of money. Another said, handling money is like handling a live electrical wire. Without proper care, it will kill you. Now, if you are suspicious, then you are allowed to talk about it in a very real and concrete way, which means you could ask yourselves questions. And I'm going to rattle off a whole series of questions and just listen to and think about them and, use to, and commit yourself to thinking about them at another time when you have a little bit more time for reflection. But, but you can give yourself an honest personal assessment to see what kind of mess money is making in your life. Ask yourself questions like, are you actually content? Do you feel that way? Even now, right now in this season, are you content? Do you have financial fears? Do you have consumer debt? Were there simply things you must have even though you did not have the money for it? Does the roller coaster of the stock market give you agita? That was my mom's word, agita. Does it give you the heartburn? Does it make you, is it, are you staying up at night? Do you have insomnia? Are you sleepless? And when you're tossing and turning, are you thinking about the market and things going down and retirement and investments and what happened? Do you tend toward overworking or continual promotions because of the promise of more money? Here's a good one. Has your standard of living gone up proportionately 
to your income. Now, numbers people, stay with me here. Because if you're thinking about it as a proportionate, you'd go, well, of course, that's what should happen. You should not spend more than you make. And so proportionately, as my income goes up, my standard of living should go up. You obviously don't want your standard of living to go up ahead of what your income is. I'm saying, why does that have to be a given? Why is it that as our income goes up, that our standard of living has to go up? Why can't our income go up and our standard of living remain the same? Well, but then I would have all that leftover money. There it is. You'd have all that money, God's money, to use in his ways. Why do we just assume that we're supposed to live at a standard that is dictated by our income? Is your life, your house, your garage, your storage filled with clutter and things that you rarely use? Do you have a sense that there is never enough? Never enough stuff, never enough savings, never enough financial security, never enough retirement, never enough money for the kids to go to college. Have you wrestled with the idea of what luxury actually means in this day and age and culture? What is self-indulgence? How, how do I weigh out these very difficult and tricky kinds of questions? Are you willing to offer this part of your Christian journey to Jesus? Or is this one you're holding back from him? Because he's got a ton to say about it. Does it scare you? When I mention the idea of surrendering it, does it scare you to, to offer this part of your life to Jesus? Because who knows what that guy might ask? Can you be challenged in this area? Or does the whole conversation feel like a violation? Are you here today saying, who does he think he is trying to tell me how to use my money? I had an old mentor that said, when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one you hit. And so this is a good assessment for you. You get to, to ask yourself these kinds of questions. And this is between you and your God. I'm not, I'm not here trying to stand in judgment or anything like this. I am under this inspection as well. And then we have to ask ourselves, how much is enough? And, and this is a tricky one. I only want to comment on it in a second. But think of every decision you make as on a continuum, right? On one side is the bare necessity. Once you decide that you're actually going to purchase something, buy an experience, or whatever it might be, or save that money, there is that version of it, and then over here is the other version of it. And sometimes this decision is based on how much money we have. But do we ever stop and just say, where on the continuum should I actually be and offer this as a spiritual discipline between you and your Savior? Do I ever get to say, wait a second, maybe I don't need all of those bells and whistles. Maybe I don't need the car that has quite that much debt attached to it. Just, it's just a way of thinking about it. Now, not every decision in your life is going to be this one. I'm going to indulge in some luxuries that you might not. I might spend more on a hobby, that you, and you might say, well, that's, that's too much. I don't think you should be spending that much. I, I might spend less on my cars and think you spend too much on your cars, and so we have to be very careful in becoming legalistic or judgmental about that. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give us some tools that we get to use to bring our lives more and more into conformity with what Jesus would have for us. Remember, he gets to have one person do this and another person do that because we're in a relationship with our Savior. 
And I'm just trying to give us a couple of ways, a couple of tools that would help us think through these kinds of questions. And I'd encourage you to reflect on what matters in eternity. We saw that already in this passage, but it's, it's loaded in the teaching of Jesus. Wealth is temporal, and in a thousand years, the things that we have worked so hard to buy and consume and own will mean nothing. Only what we have been able to invest in eternity will last. I think so many of the pursuits that we live, they're going to seem childish to us from the vantage point of a thousand years. And I think if we think, get our mindset more along those lines, it may free us from some of the mess that we create here. You see, everything we have is on loan from God. Everything. He created it all. He's given it to us to steward. What a great privilege that is. And there will be an accounting for it as well. And then practice contentment. Practice contentment. See, contentment today strengthens the soul and it frees us to be generous. And we do that by knowing that as followers of Jesus, we, we already have everything we need in life and death and in eternity and it doesn't matter if we're experiencing hardships now. Those could be used for, for great spiritual depth in your own life. And it doesn't matter if we've been blessed with a crazy abundance. That can be used by God to do amazing and wonderful things for the kingdom. And it isn't what matters is whether or not in this moment we're practicing contentment because Jesus is giving us a better inheritance, a heavenly, eternal reward. The writer of Hebrews phrases it like this. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Let's pray. Lord, as we wrestle through some of these challenging topics, we have to recognize that, that you showed the way. Jesus gave up the wealth and the abundance of heaven for poverty in this world so that we could be promised the inheritance of all of the new heaven and the new earth. That Lord, this is a great privilege. You've given us resources here in abundance, more than people throughout history and throughout the world have ever known and I'm asking Lord that you would challenge our hearts now give us the confidence in you we need to trust and to rest and to allow you to meddle in some of these areas of our lives that we have guarded and we have protected and we have defended for so long against you and Lord let us just invite you into these things even now invite you in do your work we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Amen.